We cover his background in cloud security, some of the challenges of the cloud, and even his recent experience switching from LastPass to OnePass. To what? <laughs> you want to stumble over <laughs> that one? Okay. That's a thing to do. Apparently I do. <laughs> oh. You know, one's password, everybody. <laughs> so enjoy the chat, and we'll see you right after for some Play Your Passwords Right. Bum, 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 bum. I feel like that's a little bit 90s game show. Uh, I don't know whether to lean in on it. <laughs> no sale, Anna. Sorry. We're not doing this. <laughs> so enjoy the chat, and we'll drop it in here. I find that that, that old standby works perfectly <laughs> every time. We don't need to say that we'll drop it in. That's the, that's the key. Right. You don't have to say it. You can just do it. You're right. You guys have said drop it in enough now that Anna is totally going to be dropping it in here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right, let's jump into something that we released this week, which is the GitHub Student Pack. Students can now get a free year of 1Password with GitHub Student Developer Pack to jumpstart their career in software development. Because, you know, software development, you have a bunch of keys and logins and all this kind of stuff. The GitHub Student Pack is a collection of tools and services that are made available for free by GitHub to students who are learning software development. And from May 9th, 1Password joined this student pack, meaning that students around the world will be eligible to get 1Password personal accounts for absolutely nothing. We're very excited to be part of this effort to fuel the next crop of software developers and give students access to all the wonderful developer tools that 1Password is building alongside the other great security benefits of 1Password. We have a pretty good history of free things out in the community, and I love that we're adding this one like this is great especially with our big push on the developer tools on the developer tooling side of things lately like signed commits the ssh agent like all that stuff that you heard about on the last show students get to work that right into their their workflow it's awesome for me it's the students i mean we have been so fortunate with our internship programs here like we have some amazing people coming through the door and it's just remarkable the amount of things that they've been able to participate on and things that they've been able to help create and all of that so it's super exciting to be part of their futures and being able to to give them another tool to make their lives easier so that they can go forward and not worry about a password they can actually just get things done yep 100 percent true as opposed to 99% true? As opposed to 99% true. Yeah, yeah. Did you also see the amusing piece of password news this week? Odeon, the, the cinema app in the UK, put its release notes in the App Store and included, to test delete function, please use this login account and delete. And it was a, a testing email oh. at, Odeon, uh, at Odeon's website, plus the password... Odeon1234 exclamation mark. Mm, yikes. I mean, as bad as that password is, including it in the release notes is worse. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump into some Watchtower Weekly. Watchtower Weekly is a staple segment of the show named after 1Password's Watchtower feature, where we shine a light on some of the latest security news and recent data breaches each episode. And this week, our first story is from TechCrunch. So Apple releases first rapid security fixes for iPhones, iPads, and Mac. Apple on May 1st released its first batch of publicly available rapid security patches aimed at quickly fixing security vulnerabilities that are under active exploitation or pose significant risks to its customers. 
According to a notice, the rapid security response updates deliver important security improvements between software updates. So these are kind of like much smaller, very direct bug fixes rather than like releases with release notes. Rapid security responses were introduced to allow Apple customers to update their devices faster than a typical software update because you have to, you know, reboot and all that kind of stuff. And Apple says the feature is enabled by default and some rapid patches can be installed without rebooting, though not always. Okay, so maybe you don't skip that bit, but, you know, you skip a decent amount of download, I imagine, as well. The rapid security update lands for customers running iOS 16.4.1, iPad 16.4.1, macOS 13.3.1. Once installed, it will add a letter to the software version. So you'll be running 16.4.1a, etc. Users running older versions of Apple's software will not receive this rapid security fix. And Apple said that fixes will be included in subsequent software updates. This must just complicate their build and release schedule. No end. (laughs) I really feel for them. I saw on Mastodon a couple of Apple engineers saying like, okay, now you get to know what I was working on for the last two years. Oh, yikes. Meaning this feature. Like, oh boy. Yeah, this has got to be a pretty uh, monumental undertaking from an update point of view. Yeah, I mean, Monday's rollout hasn't exactly gone so smoothly. Some customers said that they could not install the update. And when TechCrunch tested on an iPhone, an iPad and a Mac, the updates downloaded but did not immediately install. It's also not clear what the security update fixes because there are no release notes. In recent weeks, researchers have discovered new exploits developed by spyware makers Quadream. Do we rate terrible software spyware making groups anymore? Quadream is is like a three to me, I think. Yeah, you still do. That's a thing. That's your thing, and I'm here for it. So, like, please, yes. A, a, a three out of ten, I think, for that. Yeah, I agreed. I feel like we either should or turn it into a show. <laughs> is this a real software spy maker, or is this a real spy maker? Oh, it could be a game. You know, real or fake? Oh, <laughs> I could name them all day. I could name them all day. <laughs> Flamingo Real Estate. That's just, that's where I'd go first. Um, The NSO group also aimed at targeting iPhone users around the world. Both these spyware makers exploited previously undisclosed vulnerabilities in Apple software that allowed their government customers to silently steal from a victim's device. Citizen Lab said that last month, Lockdown Mode, a feature that rolled out by Apple last year to prevent similar targeted attacks, successfully blocked at least one NSO-developed exploit that abused a vulnerability in Apple's smart home feature, HomeKit. Given the apparent seriousness of this latest security patch, we recommend that you update immediately if you haven't. So you need to get on to 16.4.1, and then hopefully the A patch will be delivered. I love this version of being able to send you know instant small security fixes but yeah the the complications involved in like having to be on 16.4.1 and then jumping from that to 16.4.2 i guess 
with like, you know, A included. Oh, the complexities of this have to be endless. All I can think is it's, you know, 16.4.1.D. Does it go like AA? What happens if there's a whole bunch before the next release dot comes out? Like it's... I'm assuming that they left room for 26 of them <laughs> and then it would go to AA. <laughs> yeah. I think the part that I, I was most surprised by here in the story as you were reading that, even after we joked about the, the wonderful name making here, is this, this Quadream and NSO group they have government customers who are stealing data. Is that right what I heard you saying? Yes. So this spyware group is working for the government and then they're stealing home kit sh- Like they want to see what time you turn your lights on so they can, what, monitor electricity usage? I don't even know what on earth would be. It's kind of mind-boggling the kind of connections that are going on out here now. Oh, yeah. Cameras are also home kit devices and they have microphones. Uh, Quadream the Israeli spyware vendor have operator locations, which are Mexico, Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania, Israel, UAE, Ghana, Bulgaria, Uzbekistan, and Singapore. So there you go. So I'm so sorry. Did we say that there was, that we determined what the fix was in this release or no? Okay. So I have a theory that this changed nothing. Oh, and it was just a test. I think this was a test. I think this was just 16.4.1, you know, repatched as A. And that was it. <laughs> I'm thinking it was just to allow that file name to exist. It was like, we need to do an update so that we can start using letters. Okay, well, let's do an update with a letter so that we can use letters going forward. It was like a 75 or 85 uh, megabyte download. So like there was something hmm. in there. It's just a picture of a cat. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> res cat. All right. This next one, ex-Uber security chief has been sentenced over covering up hack. We spoke about this quite some time ago, but Uber's former security chief has avoided jail, but been sentenced to three years probation for covering up a cyber attack from the authorities. Joseph Sullivan was guilty of paying hackers $100,000 after they gained access to 57 million records of Uber customers, including names and phone numbers. He must also pay a $50,000 fine and serve 200 hours of community service. Prosecutors originally asked for a 15-month prison sentence. Sullivan was also found guilty of obstructing an investigation from the Federal Trade Commission. Judge William Oreck said that he was showing Sullivan leniency, partly because this was the first case of this kind, but also because of his character. He said that if there are more, people should expect to spend time in custody, regardless of anything. I hope everybody here recognizes that. So a little bit of a... You know, this is quite a new thing, so we're going to be lenient to begin with, but not something that I feel will continue for very long. Sullivan began his role as Uber's chief security officer in 2015. In November 2016, the attackers who targeted Uber emailed Sullivan and told him they had stolen a large amount of data, which they would delete in return for a ransom, according to the US Department of Justice. Staff working for Sullivan confirmed data, including records of some of the 57 million Uber users and 600,000 driving license numbers that had been stolen. According to the DOJ, Sullivan arranged for the hackers to be paid $100,000 in exchange for them signing a non-disclosure agreement to reveal the hack to anyone. The hackers were paid in December 2016, disguised as a bug bounty, uh, a, a reward used to pay cybersecurity researchers who disclose vulnerabilities so they can be fixed. The hackers subsequently faced conspiracy charges in 2019 and pleaded guilty. Wild that, like, both sides of this have now been sentenced. (laughs) Like the person covering it up and the person doing the thing. 
both seemingly charged. My mind is busy going to the fact that they managed to catch the hackers on top of uncovering that there was the payout made and all this kind of stuff. Like, it's really hard usually to find these folks and to actually get anything into jail and then to have it actually proceed and be found guilty and get all of that done. So this is the first time it's happened. So this is the trial case that we're going to use to put it all together. Kind of feels like, okay, well, we've we've knitted a nice little story together. We've tied off all the loose ends. Isn't everything wonderful? It just maybe I'm too suspicious now. It doesn't feel like it quite fits together nicely. Yeah, I do think that this will encourage people not to hide things like this, but also understand the the seriousness of doing so. Oh, 100%. 100%. If your company is in charge of protecting customer data, that's important. That's an actual, like, real-life responsibility that you are responsible for. And if something happens, you have to own up and tell people about it. You can't just cover everything up. That just makes things worse. Yeah, and I think there's a personal responsibility element here that is quite interesting as well. Like, this isn't Uber on trial. This is one person's decision that was wrong and has been punished for it. As an individual who works for a company, I feel quite protected by 1Password. But like, if I made a decision like this, I understand that that is on me as an individual. And I think like that kind of thinking is, one, kind of terrifying. But two, like, it absolutely should be this way. Like, this is a decision that this person has made as a top leader in a company. And it should come with some personal weight, I think. It's interesting you've done that because it just tied together to me with the the chat GPT stuff, because you've got now more reports of people feeding in sensitive company data into these engines, using it for things that they definitely should not be. And I think that's definitely, you know, that's a personal liability. If you at a company have all of this data and you have access to something, if you make that choice to say, well, you know, it'll be really hard for me to, to put this financial statement together and come up with some good forecasting. Let me just take all of the confidential company information, feed it into this engine and see what it tells me to do. That's your own personal responsibility for making that horrible, horrible decision. So hopefully this is a well-timed reminder to people to be mindful of how you're using your, your data internally within a company. I think so. Yeah. Mm. Yep. So this next one, Apple and Google are working together to limit AirTag stalking. So Apple and Google have teamed up on a proposed industry specification aimed at combating the safety risks associated with AirTags and other Bluetooth-enabled tracking devices. The company's recently announced that the new standard requires the implementation of unauthorized tracking detection and alerts across Android and iOS. Apple and Google's proposal would alert users if an unknown Bluetooth tracker is traveling with them, no matter what kind of phone they have. And the proposed specification lists a number of best practices for the creators of Bluetooth tracking devices, the ones that are supposed to prevent the misuse of location trackers that put users at risk for stalking, harassment, and theft. As outlined in the document, the unwanted tracking detection should detect and alert individuals when a tracker is separated from its owner, is traveling with them, and also provide instructions on how to find and disable the device. Other companies that make similar tracking devices include Tile, Chipolo, Eufy Security, Samsung and Pebblebee are already on board with this proposed standard 
And since the release of Apple's AirTag in 2021, privacy advocates have expressed concerns over the device's safety. Last year, The Verge spoke with Erica Olson of the National Network to End Domestic Violence, who said tracking devices had been a problem for years and the, prior to the release of the AirTag. Apple responded by improving its unknown AirTag alerts on iPhone and creating an app that scans for unwanted trackers on Android. In today's statement, Olson says, these new standards will minimize the opportunities for abuse of this technology and decrease the burden on survivors in detecting unwanted trackers. We are grateful for these efforts and look forward to continuing work together to address unwanted tracking and misuse. Apple's vice president of sensing and connectivity Oh, what a title. Wow. We built Apple AirTag and Find My Network with a set of proactive features to discourage unwanted tracking, a first in the industry. And we continue to make improvements to help ensure the technology is being used as intended. This new industry specification builds upon the AirTag protections and through collaboration with Google results in a critical step forward to help combat unwanted tracking across iOS and Android. I get these alerts quite a lot. Uh, because I I walk really you know into town and and that type of thing and I you know for example might put my bag down in a crowded area or or something like that and I think if you walk alongside someone for long enough it does tag you quite quickly now and so it, it sends you a little message wow. also if you go out with other people and like they're carrying air tags on them as I do in my backpack. You know, we go to an offsite route, you're going to get pinged because if we take a walk for any any distance, it's going to ping you and say, look, there's an air tag by you. How about that? I've not. I, well, I live in cow country, so I haven't experienced this yet. But that's all, that's really cool. I also carry several pairs of AirPods because the battery is all various levels. All right, Rockefeller, take it easy. <laughs> They're the cheap ones, and they're they're very dull. <laughs> like they're, they're very close to death, and that's why I have to carry two in my pocket. The two hundred dollar ones, not the three hundred dollar ones. The cheap yeah. ones, the ones where the batteries are at ten percent. Yeah, but I carry two of those in my pocket, and then an air tag, usually in my luggage as well as my backpack. And so, like, I'm just a mess for these things. I'm setting everybody's phone <laughs> off in any distance from me. I have one air tag on our dog's collar, and so whenever I take him to doggy daycare, I'll leave. And obviously I leave him behind and like my phone will be like, oh, you left Indigo behind at this location. <laughs> and it's always a little bit of like, oh, shit. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this story, but these are just my experiences <laughs> with Apple's AirTag stuff. <laughs> to bring it back to the actual story is the thing I like about this is that Apple is is definitely taking the social responsibility aspect of these things very seriously to the point of like, working with other smartphone manufacturers to try and make sure that they get more coverage for the safety aspects of, of this stuff. So that's, that's good. It's all good news. Yeah. And, and I really like the fact that, you know, industries are coming together to agree on these. I hope we see the same thing with AI and all the, the other things that are being created. We want some industry standards that are going to help reduce any sort of damage that the technology makes, I think. 100%. <laughs> took me a second (laughs) yes okay so that is all we have for watchtower weekly today so i think we can move on to my interview with joe south oh did we let you do one yeah nice host of fellow security podcast security unfiltered we cover his background in cloud security some of the challenges of the cloud and even his recent experience in switching from LastPass to one password 
Joining me on the show today to chat about all things cloud security is Joe South. Joe is a principal cloud security engineer and the host of the Security Unfiltered podcast. He also recently made the switch from LastPass to 1Password, and I'm excited to find out more about his switching experience today too. So welcome to the show, Joe. How's your day going so far? My day is dependent upon my newborn, and so I got a little bit of sleep last night, so I'm well rested. I'm ready to go work out. That's not a sentence I've ever said, I don't think. I'm well rested, and then I'm ready to go work out. (laughs) (laughs) Can you give us a, a bit of a background on you and your route into security? Yeah, sure. So, you know, my journey into security was a bit of a long one, to be honest. I started my career after college and help desk. I actually got my bachelor's in criminal justice. I planned on going into law enforcement and I was doing IT help desk like work until I found a law enforcement job. In my help desk career early on, I discovered cybersecurity, right? I didn't know that this was a thing before. I didn't realize that it was an emerging field that companies were actually hiring for this kind of thing. And I picked up the Security Plus book and I couldn't put it down, you know, so I figured that was a good start. So then I picked up the Network Plus book and I couldn't stay awake while reading it. And so I was like, okay, let's focus on security then. And it was two and a half years of interviewing, getting certifications, getting experience, getting a master's degree in cybersecurity. But once I got into cybersecurity, you know, my career kind of took off, so to speak, and I started specializing in EDR solutions, SIM solutions, IAM solutions, really getting a broad range of experience early on and then choosing the domain that I wanted to specialize in being cloud security later on. Nice. For those who might not know, what does cloud security encompass? Yeah. So cloud security, at least right now, encompasses everything in the cloud. So everything that your company may store in AWS, Azure, GCP, Alibaba, it encompasses securing the data that you store in that cloud, as well as the underlying infrastructure and all of the different configurations that you may have in that cloud. Cloud security is focused on securing it. Nice. And what are the risks of cloud security if you, if you don't do it right? Well, the risks is, you know, if you don't do it right, typically, if you don't do it right with one thing, (laughs) there's typically a lot more things that you didn't do right. And so you run the risk of, you know, not just breaching one little piece of data that you store in the cloud, you risk breaching everything. I would say that it's a little bit easier to do that in the cloud than any other environment, really, because, you know, in the cloud, your data is living on someone else's computer, okay? And so you have to find a way to secure it without being able to touch it, without being able to know what device it's even on. All of those things are irrelevant in the cloud. And so you have to use things like encryption techniques, like infrastructure security by default. All of these different cloud security techniques you heavily rely on, whereas on-prem, you could say, okay, unplug that server, that data's secure. That's a real thing that people actually do for some of their data. I worked for a company that that actually did that. But in the cloud, that's completely unavailable. You can't do that. And what do you think are some of the elements of kind of this good hygiene, I guess, around cloud security? What are some elements of that that you think are, are like the most important? That's a great question. 
I would start with data encryption and data security. If all else fails, if everything else is configured improperly, if everything else is broken and an attacker still gets right to your data, what's the last line of defense that you have? Typically, that's encryption. So you should really be focusing on the encryption aspects of how data is encrypted, where it's encrypted, with what it's encrypted, where are those encryption keys stored, which... You know, a little hint for everyone out there, it should probably never touch the cloud provider that you're storing that encrypted data in, right? Because you can recover an encryption key, even if you delete it after the fact, who knows how long those things will stay around in a massive AWS environment, right? I have no clue. It could be years until AWS fully deletes it all from their environment because it's so heavily replicated. So thinking through the encryption problem will really enable you to provide higher level of service to the rest of your organization, because then you can say, okay, we can make an exception for use on this port, this VPC traffic to be allowed through this endpoint in a secure manner, right? You're a little bit more comfortable with making that decision because you know that your data at the end of the day, even if it's in a attacker's hands, it is secure at the end of the day, right? Because they don't have the keys, hopefully. From there, you know, it's really just least privilege and IAM. Those are the main fundamentals of security, but in the cloud, it's a whole lot more important because IAM is so expansive. It can grow so rapidly in the cloud. I think that people don't actually understand how rapidly IAM can grow and just turn into a beast that people are not ready for honestly. And then, you know, having least privilege throughout your environment, right? So I kind of already touched on it with the network piece, but having a least privilege approach to your entire network, to your entire infrastructure, that will put you up in the best place possible to ward off any attacks, to survive an attack and have your company live another day and even identify a potential attacker. So you touched on encryption. I think that's probably the bit that hasn't had too many advances in in technology. But every other thing that you mentioned has had kind of rapid change, even in the move to remote for a number of different companies. How do you keep up with these mass random changes? Yeah, you know, for some of us in security, we don't really see them as random. We see them as uh, things that have been preached for years, right? But that no one listens to us about. So I try to listen to those topics. I try to key into the people that are actually doing the hacking, that are reformed black hat hackers, that know what's going on in the world, that have exploited these things before. And I start to learn more about them. You know, so I'm reading news articles. I'm reading books on them. Like I have a bookcase behind me. I've read almost all of those books and it's all security related books. Like, I'm sorry, I'm a nerd, whatever. Staying on top of it, It can be challenging, right? Like you mentioned, encryption is the one that's probably changed the least over the past decade. I think that all that is changing with quantum computing, which is why I'm starting to learn things about quantum computing security and quantum encryption and all that fun stuff, why I'm having people on my podcast talking about AI and the benefits of it, the security risks and implications of it things like that. So that's another thing, right? My podcast allows me to talk to experts in the field that are doing this thing every single day. I may not be hacking infrastructure every single day, but I'll be talking to someone for an hour 
about what they're doing and how they hacked a aircraft carrier for the U.S. military and how they did it from the shoreline and the aircraft carrier was at sea and they had to target it a very certain specific way. All that stuff I wouldn't be able to really learn about if it wasn't for that podcast. That's awesome. Yeah, that that kind of immersive learning, keeping touch with you know all the the kind of modern changes of everything is a really great approach. In your opinion, you know, if someone wanted to become a cloud security engineer, what what are the important skills? Yeah, I would say some of the important skills is you have to have experience in other security domains. You know, so I had experience in IAM, some network security experience, endpoint security experience, securing infrastructure, vulnerability management. The reason why I say that is because in the cloud, it all falls under your umbrella. Vulnerability management for the cloud, I own it. Endpoint security, infrastructure security, network security, encryption, all of it all falls under your purview. And so you need to be very well versed in all these different technologies, all these different security methodologies of how you approach a different problem. And, you know, with the added layer of you don't know what device this actually lives on, right? You don't know where this lives. It says it lives in a region, but that region expands 30 states. Who knows where it lives, right? How do you plan for a disaster in that scenario? And so all of this, I guess, experience earlier on in your career will lead you towards cloud security if you so choose. You know, and on top of that, unfortunately, for the past couple of years, I've been recommending that people don't have to get experience or be very well versed with the coding language. But that's changing due to AI and how the cloud is developing into more of a serverless or function-based environment. People really do need to learn how to code now, you know, more now than ever to really be skilled and efficient in the cloud. I actually worked at a place previously where I had the cloud security experience and my colleague had some cloud security experience, but he could code better than he spoke English. Okay. I mean, like this guy was amazing and, you know, he's a native English speaker, right? Like that's just trying to, I'm trying to tell you, right? Like how smart this guy is. <laughs> we had two totally different skill sets, two totally different backgrounds. And there was sections of the cloud that he was extraordinarily intelligent with that I couldn't be. To me, as a cloud security professional, I'm always trying to look for something that I have to learn more about, that I have to be more skilled in. And that was an area that I was lacking. And he kind of showed me like, hey, this is a skill set of where everything's developing. You really need to pay attention to this. And so now I actually start to recommend that to people. You know, and if you have those first two things down, then start looking at certifications. You know, certifications aren't really required, but they prove the knowledge that you have. So there's no reason to not get them. Like if I have experience on my resume, for instance, that talks about my security experience in AWS and I don't have the AWS security certification, I'm going to get paid less money than someone with that certification because right out the gate, I'm validating I have that knowledge. I'm claiming I have it and then the certification validates it. And that's kind of the unfortunate situation that we're in as a marketplace, you know, that's that's the best way to gauge if someone's, you know, lying on their interview and whatnot. But it is extremely helpful for you to just validate that information and maybe learn something new. That's some great advice there. Switching gears slightly, 
You recently made the switch from LastPass to, to 1Password. We're not going to cut out the bad bits here. Please do tell me, like, what was the process like and how did you find it? Because I, I know for the amount of, of logins and, and access-based things that you have in 1Password or in LastPass at the time, it's probably terrifying. Yeah, that was a very daunting task that, to be quite honest, I put off for probably two or three months because I felt it was just such a daunting task. I was heavily using LastPass before moving to 1Password and after two or three months of kind of putting off this personal project, I kind of posted on LinkedIn for recommendations of password managers. And 1Pass was the first one that stood out to me. 1Pass seemed to be the one that provided you the most enhanced security without you doing anything. For instance, you know, when I log into my vault in 1Pass, it's a password that I know, that's easy to remember for me, that no one else knows. And that gets me into my vault, unlocks everything else, which that sounds very simple, but in LastPass, that was not the case. That was not the case at all. They even tell you there's no security around this password thing, you know, so create it as strong as you possibly can (laughs) to unlock your password vault. Well, me as a security professional, What's the strongest method of doing this? Either it's a randomly generated password or it's a passphrase. Okay, so how do I remember either of those, right? Like, that's extremely difficult because like I said before, I'm trying to learn all this other stuff. I don't have time to memorize a passphrase or a random password. You know, it it just makes things more difficult. And if I lose it, I lose my vault. I lose every password I have. And so 1Pass was the one that stood out to me, honestly, because it provided that enhanced level of security without me having to do anything additional. And the migration phase, right? Like I thought that that migration period for me was going to take a month or two. You know, I'm working a full day job. I have a podcast. I do other things on the side. I figured it was going to take me at least two months if I was really working on it diligently every single day because I have like 500 passwords in there. It took five minutes. It took five minutes because I had to, I had to read a document for four minutes. And I think I read it like two or three times because I didn't believe what it was telling me. <laughs> it was extremely simple. I couldn't believe it. That's not me trying to talk it up because I'm on the one password podcast, right? Like it was truly that simple. Just a simple export from LastPass, import in a one pass, and we're good to go. And that's amazing to hear, especially because we put some work into our importer recently it's still got a long way to go we want to import from all different kinds of places and the roadmap on that particular feature is very very long but it's great to hear that it left you feeling really confident and you were happy to use it how has the switch kind of impacted your your day-to-day workflow so i've noticed no negative impact right i, I would say only positive impact because You know, with LastPass, when I put in the master password in LastPass, right, it's good for, I don't know, a month, two months, three months, I don't have to log back in. It sounds more convenient, but it's far less secure because if anyone gets access to that device, they automatically have access to everything else. With 1Pass, yeah, I have to put in my password if I want to use it for longer than like 30 minutes, right? Like I use it one time, I wait 30 minutes, I have to put it back in again. Right. But it's a password that I know. It's something that's easy for me to know. 
the reason why you can do something like that and it's considered more secure is because you guys are salting and hashing that password in a way so that it literally doesn't matter what I put in for my password. It's going to be way more secure than anything else that I come up with, honestly. And so the day-to-day use, sure, I may have to put in my password a couple times, but it's something easy that I know, something easy that I remember. Whereas if I had to put in my last pass password, I'd have to go look it up. I'd have to go you know, in my safe and like pull out the piece of paper. Hopefully I typed it right. Hopefully I can read my own writing right. That's great to hear. I was just looking for the security setting that toggles on how, how much the, the auto lock is. Oh, yeah. I found it before. I think mine is just set to like 10 minutes, the default. Mm-hmm. You can set that a lot longer. Yeah. But again, like, you know, we, we try and make it aggressive because most people have biometrics of some kind set up, either the extension working with the desktop app or anything like that. So for most people, it's like a, you know, a fingerprint or a face ID or Android fingerprint or Windows Hello or something, something akin to that, that we try and make it as leaning on the aggressive side because of the security benefits of, of kind of having it locked all the time. Have you noticed any other like key differences or benefits or problems with the switch between the two? So honestly, I didn't notice any problems with the switch. It was more of like a culture shock switching from last pass to one pass because it was so easy. Literally, after five minutes of doing my import and reading the document, I was completely converted to OnePass. That's so great to hear. I'm sure the, the folks at OnePassword who have worked on Importer will be really great to hear that as well. Where can people go to find out more about you or the work that you do, including your, your podcast? Yeah, so my podcast is called Security Unfiltered. It's on every podcast platform out there, Spotify, Apple, Google, really all of them. Securityunfiltered.com is where I post all of my episodes, blogs, any updates, all that good stuff. And then also on LinkedIn, you know, I think my LinkedIn name is Joseph South. But those are really the best ways to find my content and get a hold of me. All right, amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay, it is time for Play Your Passwords Right. The rules. I will show you a password and then reveal how many times that password has been in a breach. I will then show you another password and Sarah and Rue will have to guess whether it's higher or lower and whether it's been breached more or less times than the previous password. To do this, we use haveibeenpwned.com forward slash passwords. You can go there if you want to fact check us or anything like that. So it's worth noting all of these passwords are one word and lowercase. This week's theme is around the world in eight passwords. Oh, very nice. Here we go. The first one is out of Africa, all one word and all lowercase. And that has been breached 312 times. Okay. And so now we go on to the next one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know. I'm getting there. So the next one is blue Hawaii. Is that higher or lower? I'm going to go higher. I I am too. And then uh, we're also uh, joining us today uh, for this game is Lowerbot. Lowerbot will, of course, always be choosing the lower. Oh. And Lowerbot says lower for Blue Hawaii. New friend in Lowerbot, huh? Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, Lowerbot was wrong. It is higher. Blue Hawaii, 468. 
times that that has been breached. Okay, next one. Midnight in Paris. So we've gone from Africa to Hawaii to Paris. Midnight in Paris. What do we think? I'm going lower. I'm going to go way higher. And of course, lower bot is going lower. Yeah. Two of you are right. Oh. Oh, it is lower. Oh. 34. It's because it was too many letters. I forgot the lazy factor. Oh, that's right. So I forgot that that was your technique for this. The lazy factor. Yeah. <laughs> forgot my own rules. Okay. Wow. Okay. The next one, Good Morning Vietnam. I, I won't. I won't do it. <laughs> I won't. Higher or lower? What do we think? That is such a good soundtrack. Mm. If you're ever looking for a soundtrack to listen to, that's the one. It's got uh, Robin Williams in there with his Adrian Cronauer bits, and it's just wonderful. Um, anyways, aside, I'm going to go with lower, <laughs> even though it's 34, because it's definitely longer than Midnight in Paris. I, too, am going lower. There's a little bit of like playing the game here and playing Anna, and I think that Anna has taken us lower yet. So let's go. let's go lower. Okay. It is lower. Yeah. Good morning, Vietnam is 17. 17 times that's been breached. Okay, the next one is when in Rome. When in Rome. Higher. 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 It is higher. Much higher. Yeah. (laughs) 561 times that was in a data breach. I am a little uncomfortable with my one point lead over Sarah because this is... This could still turn against me very quickly. I am very uncomfortable with it as well. <laughs> you are doing a lot better than before when we used to play this game, though, Rune. It's true. I don't know why. Okay. The next one is From Russia with Love. One of the best Bond films. What do we think? From Russia with Love. I'm going to go lower. I, yeah, that's where I was headed as well. I think that one's lower. Okay. It is lower. Holy. 137. If you want a good soundtrack from Russia with Love is very good. Okay. The next one is Tokyo Drift. (laughs) Higher. Higher? No. (laughs) Lower. Definitely lower. Tokyo Drift. This is a Fast and Furious movie, right? This is my chance to come ahead here. Oh, yeah. Come on, Vin Diesel. Bring home the win. (laughs) I think I've seen this one, you know. That's the only one I haven't. Let's not bring up the uh, soundtrack of that. Uh, okay, Tokyo Drift is higher. Yeah. A lot higher, and today's highest, it's 2,157. <laughs> the same number of characters as when in Rome. I'm not sure what that does for Sarah's strategy there. Um, I'm, I think because there's some different letters here, there's no repeating letters, but also I'm thinking of all the gearheads out there. <laughs> That's a very popular password, I'm thinking. I'm telling you. Right. This is all about my strategy on how to win this game, and I've finally tied it up. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, ooh. Uh, the next one, New York, New York. Higher. I'm going to go lower. Ooh. It is neck and neck as well. God damn it. Apart from Lowerbot, who is on three points. Everybody else is on five. <laughs> okay. New York, New York is lower. No. No. And Lowerbot's catching up to me. That one point has changed the entire game. Okay, we have one more. One more. And Rue, you need this to draw. Or Sarah, you need this to win. Yeah. I'm holding my breath. It is London Calling. Oh, crap. (laughs) I'm going to go lower. Okay, Sarah's going lower on London Calling. I have to go higher. If we pick the same, then like the outcome is the same. I have to go higher. 
So I will go higher. I'm sorry, Rue. It is lower. <laughs> but not by much. 1,162 times uh, that has been used as a password in a data breach. Wow. Phew, it worked. Well done, Sarah. Well done. Com- coming from behind for the win. Impressive. That was a great game. It was because I forgot my own rules. Now that I have my rules back in my brain, I'm good to go. <sighs> I don't like this. Rue tied with Lowerbot. Which is just <laughs> like if, if you had just picked <laughs> lower the whole time, you'd be exactly where you were. You could have saved the brain power. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you put it like that, I hate it even more. So thanks. All right. All that's left to say is love you both. Love you both. Love you both. Bye-bye. Bye bye.